Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by the gifted and amazing writer, Emily Bazelon, and we're talking about her new book, Charged. If my book only accomplishes that more people know that they have the power to elect their local district attorney, I will be happy because the ACLU did a survey a year or two ago and like half of Americans didn't know that district attorney was an elected office. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton Sam. We're back after all the live podcast shows. It's good to be back on the regular schedule. Also, don't forget to vote for us to win two Webbies. We're in the running for a Best News and Politics podcast and Best Podcast host. In order to win, we need you, our listeners, to go vote at webbyawards.com. You can also find links to vote in our show notes. And the message for this week is about notifications. You know, I have been going into talks recently and having to put my phone on Do Not Disturb so that no notifications come up. But recently, like two days ago, I just turned off my notifications for iMessage, for all these things. I turned them off. And what I realized is, like, there are only a handful of people that I need, like, a notification for when they're trying to get in touch with me. It's like my father and my sister just trying to make sure everything is okay with the fam. Almost everybody else, I can wait. I don't need to be notified. And it made me think about, like, what are the other parts of our life that we have the notifications on and we don't need the notifications on? What are the other things in our life that we are getting pinged and we are alert to and they are, like, moving us and we're responding immediately? And that's actually taking the focus off of what we're supposed to be working on. And I had this real check-in with myself, like, I really am getting a notification every time this X, Y, and Z happens. And I actually don't need to be notified when they do that. I don't need to be notified about the fact that this was important to that person. What I need to do is stay focused on the people that really matter in my life, the work that really is important to me, and how I think we can win. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Double Stroller Jones Smith <laughs> at Clint Smith III. People are going to be like, wait, is his name Clint Jones? I don't understand. <laughs> right. uh, uh, double Stroller. I love it. I love it. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Oh, my gosh. The gang's back together, y'all. Hey. Look at us. Boom, boom, boom. I got a DM and they were like, are are they trying to make you the Latoya of, of the Destiny's Child of the group? Shade. I was like, is that is that shade to Latoya or me? Or like, what's the... For the folks who are missing this cultural reference, Latoya used to be a member of Destiny's Child in the early days. And she I would argue up, an integral me- eh, member eh, of not, Destiny's not, Child. Not integral enough to be replaced. That's the first time I've heard that argument Not integral enough ever. to not be replaced. <laughs> oh, God. Right. Oh, God. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Latoya, Latoya is a very talented... I'm here for you, Latoya. Latoya Luckett is a very talented woman, but all I'm saying is she looked up and watched a video and suddenly she wasn't in it. And they were like, wait a minute. And she wasn't it was the Say My Name it. video and suddenly Destiny's Child was three people Dang. and not four. And you have to know your history, folks. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell this story. But Latoya Luckett is incredibly talented. I saw her live a couple years ago. She's actually, she's very talented. So, so my shade was unnecessary. I apologize. Speaking of Destiny's Child, though, we've got an incredible release coming out. Beyonce's Homecoming is dropping on Netflix. Oh, snap. Which will be the uh, behind the scenes unveiling of her historic Coachella performance, also known as Beachella, because she took over the whole thing that year. And I, for one, cannot wait to watch the trailer. I just gagged over it. It was incredible. And I want to say shout out to all the parents who might have tried to stay up when the live Coachella <laughs> performance was happening and who couldn't who couldn't make it with that West Coast timing. And so we weren't able to see the show in its totality, just a few clips here and there. So now we will, too, have our opportunity and the fact that we'll get to see a behind the scenes look of, of what that incredible show was like that was a testament to us right that was a testament to black folks and black culture and hbcus black college culture yeah i'm i'm very much looking forward to it 
It was a love letter to black people for sure. I was at Coachella Weekend 2 and saw it live and it was truly something to behold. I'm at Coachella right now just for the day. And the thing that threw me off, though, is that last year, because Beyonce was here, it was a lot of black people at Coachella. I mean, it was like blackity black every, <laughs> everywhere you turn around. <laughs> this year? I was like, where the black people at? Not so much. What is cool is that they have this stage from last year's performance is an installation yeah. at Coachella. Like, you can just see it on the grounds, which is really dope. Just art on every level. Anyway, um, it's time for some news. Y'all ready? Let's go. I'm going to start us off with some good news, and that is the fact that a new caucus has been started in Congress. That caucus is the Black Maternal Health Caucus. It was started by Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. She is a freshman congresswoman from Illinois and used to be a public health nurse before she moved further into public service uh, to run successfully for Congress. So we have talked about Black maternal health on the podcast before. It is something that has been getting much needed attention, um, and there's work being done on it all over the country, but we're not seeing that work necessarily translate into policy changes, and Lauren Underwood wants to make that change. We also know that Black women are four times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women in America. Uh, And so when it comes both to losing our children and losing our own lives, Black women are at higher risk than most other women. And Lauren Underwood wants to take that on. 57 members of Congress have joined her to form this caucus. And you may be wondering, what exactly is a caucus? A caucus is essentially a group of members of Congress who have said that they are committed to a particular issue or idea. A caucus is different from a committee in that a caucus cannot call a hearing. They cannot subpoena testimony. What they do often, though, is collect a body of research to make other members of Congress aware, and they build strength in numbers. So some of the more famous caucuses, like the Congressional Democratic Caucus or the Congressional Black Caucus or Hispanic Caucus, those are folks who share an identity or ideology, um, and they come together to push forward bills that can come from the research that they create together. Then there are actually other caucuses that are less known, and you'll understand why. Things like the Congressional Hockey Caucus, which is literally just a collection of hockey lovers. Because caucuses don't have the same kind of teeth that, say, a committee does, a lot of people can dismiss them. But they can actually be a really important way to help create and pass legislation. And I wanted to bring this up here because I want to ask you all if you think Congress is actually really ready to take this on. I think it's a really important gesture. We've seen folks like Jim Clyburn and Cindy Hoyer join this caucus. And I'm hoping that people will rally around these causes. But I'm more hopeful that we'll actually see some legislative action on black women's maternal health in the coming years. It's tough to say. You know, obviously, it's tough to speak with any level of certainty with the nature of our sort of political ecosystem at the moment. But I will say that, you know, this is, I think, reflective of a moment in which the sort of cultural resonance of an issue has has certainly put this at the forefront of our political attention in a way. Like Linda Villarosa, who's the former executive editor over at Essence magazine um, and now a contributing writer to New York Times magazine, wrote that huge viral piece a year ago that really sort of put this at the forefront. And then NPR and some other organizations did some great work following up. But like Linda Villarosa as a black woman, making sure that this was something that people were cognizant of. And, and I think that you know, that compounded with or in conjunction with Serena Williams story and all of these different examples in our sort of cultural landscape that brought attention to an issue that intuitively makes a lot of sense and that people might be like, oh, well, I can see how that would happen. But to give language to it, to give a voice to it, to give a level of seriousness and empirical evidence to to something that we had seen or, or had a sense was going on was incredibly important. And, and hopefully this caucus will do more than just pay lip service to it. So building on this point, one of the effects that I'm hopeful that this new caucus will have is really pushing the conversation beyond uh, just talking about health insurance to actually talking about the quality of care being provided. Because, you know, for the past decade, we've been talking about health insurance, right? And how do we make sure that everybody's covered with good quality insurance, whether that be through Obamacare or now conversation about Medicare for all. But the reality is, in particular for black women, even if you have health insurance, the quality of health care that you actually have access to, even with that insurance, is often a lesser quality than for white people, right? And so when you look at the data, first of all, what you see is that across the black belt in the South, where the majority of the black population lives, there are fewer hospitals 
your rural hospitals in particular. Uh, so just being able to access a hospital uh, can be a problem. And then you look at you know who's providing that care, who are the doctors, how does the system, the healthcare system, actually treat Black women, and there you see inequities as well. In fact, when you look at data from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Uh, what they found in looking at a range of different quality indicators across the healthcare system is that for black people in particular, they had the worst quality of care compared to whites. Uh, so much so that 40% of black people uh, reported a lower quality of care than for white patients, uh, and only 12% reported a better quality of care, which was the largest disparity of any other group. So again, you know, I think this is emblematic of the need to have a conversation that goes beyond just health insurance, where we actually talk about how do we address uh, the fundamental uh, inequities and systemic barriers that continue to exist uh, in the context of the healthcare delivery system and healthcare provider system, uh, in the context of who these doctors are, where they've been trained. Many of these doctors, as we're now seeing, were in blackface in med school, or were engaging in and learning racial bias that carries with them into how they actually practice. So I'm hopeful that we'll continue to see this conversation grow uh, and that we'll begin to see some plans being proposed by presidential candidates uh, to actually fundamentally address this issue in addition to sort of a more limited conversation about health insurance. You know, I saw some people sort of push on the creation of the caucus and say like, well, you know, people in Congress are just making caucuses for everything and da da da. And like, just as a matter of context is that no Congress has ever had fewer caucuses than its predecessor. So every Congress is like adding new caucuses. And importantly, this caucus like actually makes sense. Let me just name some of the other caucuses that exist. There's a Congressional Fraternal Caucus that just focuses on Greek life. There's a Congressional Honor and Civility Caucus, a Congressional Internet of Things Caucus, a Congressional Peanut Caucus, and a Congressional Refinery Caucus. So you think about some of the other caucuses that like mm, don't really know what they're focusing on. And then you look at this one and you're like, yes, this actually matters. And to your point, Sam, I'm interested to see what the caucus will produce in terms of solutions at scale. One of the other things that we learned, because we've had, uh, we've covered this topic before from a maternal health perspective, is that Black women often seek pregnancy care at a smaller concentration of hospitals, and those tend to be the lowest quality hospitals in a given area. And I've just been thinking about, like, structurally, what do you do with that? Like, how do you change the redistribution of the hospitals that black women choose to go to, like at scale, not like in one community. One community makes a lot of sense to me. Like I can think about a million ways to do that at a community level. So it'd be interesting to see if there is some legislation that incentivizes things differently, if legislation can create a different type of access and accountability structure for providers, for women in black communities. Like I'm fascinated to see like what can come out of such a concentrated caucus focus. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. So my news is about Georgetown University, which this past week, because of the efforts of GU 272, which is a student-led advocacy organization on campus, they have successfully passed an initiative that creates a reparations fund uh, for the 272 enslaved Africans who uh, were sold by the Maryland Society of Jesuits in 1838, which produced money that actually created a economic and financial foundation for Georgetown University. And so this is the first reparations fund created by sort of a major American organization. And it is an example of, you know, what's possible when we think about you know, how to address many of the injustices that have happened in the past, injustices that continue to happen. And, you know, so the way that this would work is each student would pay $27.20 extra each semester. Uh, that money would go towards a fund, which in total would be about $400,000 a year, uh, which would then be in the language of this initiative. It says that the money is to be allocated for charitable purposes, directly benefiting the descendants of the Georgetown University 272 and other persons once enslaved by Maryland Jesuits. Uh, So this is a non-binding resolution. It now goes to the university to decide uh, whether they're going to honor the students' wishes. Uh, Again, this passed with almost 60% of the vote and the majority of students actually turning out to vote for this. Uh, So, you know, I'm hopeful that this will materialize into, uh, you know, as intended by this initiative and be a model for what's possible at scale nationwide. At first, from an outsider's perspective, I found myself frustrated by the idea that all students, including black students, would be paying this additional amount. I also know that some of the rhetoric that was surrounding this from people who opposed this proposition was quite frustrating as well. So it was a a deeply layered thing. I heard from students who were saying that they were really frustrated by people who opposed this proposition, saying essentially that the descendants of enslaved people shouldn't be, in their view, just written a check. Um, And the kind of paternalism that is behind that idea that someone actually cannot correctly govern the money that is owed them and their family due to their ancestors' enslavement uh, is absolutely disgusting. But I found myself really mired in kind of the complicated nature of the solution that was being proposed. And a Georgetown student wrote to me and helped clarify some things for me that were really important. And I want to provide that context here. Her name is Deidre Austin. She wrote to me on Twitter. And one of the things she reminded me of that you said, Sam, is that this was a student-driven process. Essentially, students were frustrated that the university was not doing anything that they deemed sufficient in addressing this issue. We know that a couple of years ago, Georgetown discovered this, but they feel like since that time, there have not been sufficient moves to actually right that wrong. And so students said, if the university won't take action, then we will, and took the time to build a committee and thoughtfully and carefully design this process. She said that Georgetown students, including Black students, feel that they benefited from the sale of these 272-plus enslaved persons, and that makes perfect sense to me that even though as someone who knows that I came 
came from enslaved people, that even though my family is owed a debt, I'm also benefiting from the debts that other families are owed. And so, yes, that is a complicated notion, but the students took that on and weren't afraid to take on the difficulty, the challenge, the nuance of this, which often institutions are. And so I'm really proud of the students for standing up and saying, we're going to get this done and actually try to force the university's hand. And I hope that the university not only will take on this proposition, but will extend it even further and do more to right this historic wrong. First and foremost, I'm just so proud of the students at Georgetown, specifically the students who were students for GU272, the organizing entity that that really made this a thing. Because as a teacher and someone whose life is really predicated on thinking about how education translates into action and how learning can thus animate the way that we navigate the world. I mean, this is like a case study in what it means for like a group of young people to learn something that they didn't necessarily know before, to become aware of the not only the, the history of slavery at large, but specifically as it benefited them at Georgetown and benefited that institution and, and made that institution possible. They took what they learned, they let that shape and animate the way that they understood the world and understood their position within the world and within the Georgetown community, and they organized. And obviously scholars and activists have been pushing for this for many years um, and been talking about this for many years, but the way that this level of seriousness that we're talking about it in our presidential election campaigns, the level of seriousness that it occupies on, on college campuses, and obviously Georgetown being the primary example, I just... People can critique the the final result and, and it's not perfect and there's always things that can be better. You know, my hope is that they continue to work and that they fight for seats on the board, that they push the institution itself and like go after the endowment, right? Because Georgetown has a, a huge endowment that should also not be let off the hook from here. And it shouldn't, I think it is a, a great idea. The sort of $27 idea is, is fantastic and I, I hope it is done in conjunction with uh, something that is tied to to the institution as a whole. I think this is a fantastic step, and it's not going to be without messiness, but it also is reflective of some very real progress that's happened in our political discourse over the past few years. You know, often when we talk about issues of policing, people say we're being dramatic, and then we tell them, like, no, no, third of all the people killed by strangers killed by a police officer. When we talk about the issue of reparations, people also are like, you know, you should be thankful for how far we've come. Like people are being dramatic. And it's like, no, no, like most of the institutions that have been enduring are only possible because of the bodies of the enslaved. And you think about this, you know, GU-272 is is focused explicitly on the 272 slaves sold by Georgetown. And again, the argument is that like without the profit from those uh, sales that like what we know to be Georgetown wouldn't exist today. And I'm just mindful that like one of the things that is powerful about our new access to information and data is that we are able to make a more comprehensive case writ large, like a case that helps people understand the scale and enormity, not so much because we believe it differently today. Like people said this for a long time, like we didn't need to know it was 272 to believe it. But having the data does help us like learn the questions to ask of other institutions and think about how do we scale and understanding so that we can actually get to a solution that makes sense. So co-signing everything Clint said, I think this is an educator's dream, uh, Brittany and Sam too, about the urgency. Uh, but just reminded that like all of the enduring institutions uh, that we think of in American society have a relationship uh, to slavery or uh, the sale or destruction of people of color. And, you know, to build on that point, you know, it's not just the universities, although obviously there are a number of universities that have been around for quite some time that have benefited from their complicity in the slave trade uh, and in the institution of slavery. But there are also a lot of private companies that are around right now that have ties to the same institution, right? So you look at, for example, Aetna. Uh, so Aetna in, in the 1850s was actually has apologized for its practice in the 1850s where they were selling policies that reimburse slave owners for financial losses when enslaved Africans died in their custody. So Aetna uh, directly involved. There are other organizations as well, J.P. Morgan Chase, New York Life. So these are like major multi-billion dollar companies that are around today that have just like Georgetown, that may not have been around today if not for their complicity in profiting off of 
slavery, right? And so the question is, how do we take this approach in Georgetown? And while we're pushing for the government to directly deal with the issue of reparations, I think there are a whole lot of other folks as well that need to uh, make amends on their own. And, and I'm hopeful that this will create a roadmap for how we do that in the context of many of these other organizations too. So for my news, I want to talk about someone who has been central, uh, as central as one can be to the fight to end juvenile life without parole and who was central to ending that as a mandatory sentence in the Supreme Court. So Henry Montgomery, who was the petitioner in the 2016 Supreme Court decision, Montgomery versus Louisiana, was denied parole again for a second time last week. Um, he is at Angola prison. He is 72 years old and has spent more than three quarters of his life in prison. Mr. Montgomery's case was decided by the Supreme Court in 2016 after he had already served more than 50 years in prison. And the court ruled in 2012 in Miller v. Alabama to make that decision retroactive because Miller had declared that life without parole for children was unconstitutional as a mandatory sentence except for the rarest of cases. And that Supreme Court case afforded people like Mr. Montgomery the opportunity to have their sentences reviewed, and in fact, the court specifically pointed to Mr. Montgomery as an example of someone using their time in prison as a means of sort of rehabilitation and demonstrating that they can contribute again to society. The thing that makes this so infuriating and, and that makes the fact that he was denied parole for a second time so infuriating is that in 2018, he went before the parole board for the first time, but they said that he had not participated in enough educational programs to justify his release. And then last Thursday, they rejected him again for the same reason. And one of the parole board members reportedly said, it's your responsibility to continue to work towards your education. The thing about this is that for the first three decades at Angola, Montgomery and other lifers were fundamentally denied access to educational programs at all in the first place. And after that, he tried to earn his GED, but he struggled with the coursework and was eventually deemed ineligible. And psychologists came in and estimated that based on conversations with him and tests they've done, um, that he might have an IQ in the 70s, right? So very possibly struggling with uh, some intellectual disabilities. Montgomery has stayed out of trouble in prison. He has only had two disciplinary violations in the past 17 years. One was for smoking in an unauthorized space, and then another one was for not putting his clothes away properly. Um, so again, this is a reminder as a side note that like what constitutes as a violation or criminal activity or not doing what you're supposed to do can often be an arbitrary thing like not putting your clothes away properly. And that comes back to bite you um, in the way that it has. So and the last thing I want to say about this is that two lifers went up for parole on Thursday, uh, one was Henry Montgomery, who I mentioned, 72 years old, served 55 years. He was denied. And then also Clifford Hampton, who was 78 years old and has served 61 years and had a worse prison record. He was granted release. To be clear, he should have been granted release because no one should serve 61 years in prison. But the difference, and this is important, is that Henry Montgomery's victim was a white police officer and Clifford's victim was a black woman. And so... This goes into all of the data we have in terms of the nature, how punitive the punishment is, is often tied to if the victim is white or if the victim is black, if the victim is a police officer, if the victim is a civilian. So I, I bring this up because, one, as a reminder, we've talked about it before, the U.S. is the only country in the world on the books that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole. And we have to reckon with, should we be putting people in cages for the rest of their lives for something that they did when they were teenagers. And Mr. Montgomery being denied parole again was was infuriating for me. And I wanted to bring that story up because it's uh, the tragic irony is that his name is what is allowing almost 500 people now to have been released for crimes they committed when they were when they were children. Uh, but he himself has not been released. And, and I find that to be a grave miscarriage of justice. I'm fascinated with parole boards, have continued to be fascinated with parole boards. Hopefully in 2019, we're going to be able to launch this project on parole boards. So if any of you out there are interested in some parole board work, hit me up. There are a lot of amazing organizations doing a lot of work on representation before parole boards. So like we're planning to do something uh, structural about the process of parole and like membership and things like that. But again, if you want to be involved, please hit me up. Uh, what I'm interested in with this story, uh, Clint, besides the obvious the obvious injustices, is the fourth wing of government, the bureaucracy. And always mindful when like the Supreme Court makes a decision, when there's like any court decision or like an adjudicate or an arbitrator, 
that then the question of like implementation, regulation, like those things come into play and like who is the person charged of implementing? It's often like a bureaucrat. It's somebody appointed. It's somebody, it's not like a publicly elected person. It's like somebody within uh, the fourth wing of government, the bureaucracy. And I think what I want us to start to do more of in the social justice world is like attack that part of the problem head on. So when you talk about him being denied amongst the parole board, it's like, who was on the parole board? How did they get chosen? Like, what communities did they get to come from? Uh, should we be stacking parole boards with victims and police officers? No. Like, you know, there's some parole boards where they don't even have to show up in person. They can Skype in. Uh, the board officers can actually hear the cases and the board members just vote. You're like, people saw the underbelly of how the institution like functioned on a day-to-day. I think people would have dramatically different impressions of it. And the more and more that uh, I'm immersed in the work of the police, the more and more I have a deep appreciation for the fourth wing of government through bureaucracy. And I'm really glad that you brought up this piece about the victim because the family of the victim from Mr. Montgomery's case has said specifically, and they told the parole board, that they do not believe that he should be released from prison ever. They're like, we want him to die in prison. And this goes to the point that we often make is that like public policy and law And these types of decisions should not be singularly dictated or disproportionately dictated by the sentiments of a victim or a victim's family. I think we can recognize and appreciate that a victim's family is experiencing very real pain and trauma that should not be discounted. And that is that is real, that any of us would likely feel if we had a loved one taken away. And yet I should not be dictating what the parole board does if someone in my life was taken away. And you see, because of the shift in the policy landscape where because of the Supreme Court's decisions, now folks who were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole as a juvenile or somebody under 18 now have the opportunity for a hearing. So now, you know, that means that folks who are on parole boards have even more power because they now are hearing more cases than they otherwise uh, would have because of that Supreme Court decision. You also see this in the context of the death penalty where, you know, you have more and more states now moving to either abolish the death penalty or put a moratorium on the death penalty. California uh, about a month ago did so. We see New Hampshire now, the state legislature this past week, passed legislation to abolish the death penalty there, which would mean that the death penalty would be abolished in all of New England. Uh, And so what that means is you have more cases that will now more likely be sentenced to life in prison, maybe life without parole, maybe life with parole. Uh, And so again, you have a larger role for bureaucrats, for folks on parole boards to actually make what oftentimes are, you know, life and death decisions about the folks who are in those hearings, right? Folks who may have committed a crime at the age of 17, 18, and are you know, 60, 70 years old. And the thought of actually denying somebody like that the opportunity to live you know, the remainder of their life outside the confines of a prison is just like a wild decision. Everything that DeRay and Sam and Clint that you all have said, I 100% agree with. What I found most frustrating was that he did everything that was available to him to do that every step he could possibly take that every um, self-advocacy that every community advocacy opportunity he had before him he took advantage of and he still is sitting in jail I find that to be the most frustrating piece of so many of the social issues that we discuss because People do what is asked of them. People do what is available to them. And then the system either changes the goalpost or it punishes the person who had the audacity to act in the first place. This is exactly how systems work. Um, They are built to ensure that they self-perpetuate. And so it will take, to your point, DeRay, us looking in all angles of how systems continue to perpetuate in order to bring these things down. My news is about... Uh, what policing does to crime. There's a new study out that looks at contact between the police and high school age Black, Latino, and mixed race males. And what they find is that contact with the police actually increases the likelihood of uh, committing crime, not decreases the likelihood of committing crime. So in the study, they found that those who experienced face-to-face encounters with the police subsequently engaged in more acts of juvenile delinquency, such as theft and vandalism, than those who had not. And ultimately arguing that this notion that like stop and frisk or uh, broken windows policing or any type of policing that 
encourages contact with the police as a way to minimize or inhibit bad behavior actually is ineffective and might actually do the exact opposite. And the thing that I that really stuck out to me is that the team found that on average, the more frequently a boy had been stopped, the more often he went on to engage in delinquent behavior 6, 12, and 18 months later. So we often talk about like, if the goal of the police is to stop crime, like they just, that's not it. Like data is not suggesting that that's happening in the same way that if the goal of prison that some people argue is like to limit crimes happening in society, like that's not happening either. But this is the first set of research that sort of suggests that like, not only is it not decreasing crime, it actually might be increasing crime in communities. So I wanted to bring this here. I wanted to hear what you all had to say about this study. Yeah, I mean, this is a great study, and this is adding to an emerging body of literature that is showing exactly that, right? I think you go back decades in the field of criminology, you see the bias, uh, researcher bias at play, where researchers have for decades been trying to assess the role of police in reducing crime. That has been sort of the focus of theirs. They hadn't really spent a lot of time asking the question, well, does policing actually reduce crime or are there circumstances under which policing actually contributes to crime? Uh, and if so, how do we prevent that from happening? Right? Like that's a different set of questions to ask that that is only really now being asked in response to the changes in sort of the national discourse on policing and police violence that have been led by the protests, right? And now you're seeing research that is answering those questions and showing that in fact there are many circumstances under which police can actually increase crime uh, rather than reduce it. So for example, uh, there was a study that uh, I think we talked about it on the pod maybe last year uh, in Milwaukee, which found that after a high profile incidence of police violence, it not only sort of destabilized black communities in Milwaukee, but precipitated a massive increase in homicides. So in essence, what the researchers found in that study was that a single incident of police violence can cause a crime wave in a community. What you're seeing here is the impact of uh, sort of the more everyday encounters with the police being stopped, being frisked as a young black man, uh, something that happens all too frequently in cities across the country. And what the researchers here show is that those everyday sort of stop actually lead to um, a psychological distress for uh, the young boys involved, but also uh, lead to an increased likelihood that folks will engage in criminal activity after the stop. And what that means is that, you know, for all of these resources being invested in policing under the sort of rhetorical guise of addressing issues of public safety, uh, what you actually see is that a lot of those resources may actually be worsening the problem and leading to all of these other effects that are often not quantified and not studied, but that impact uh, communities at scale. Something I think a lot about with the young men that I work with who are incarcerated and something that I think is taken for granted in our public discourse around the interactions that young men of color have with police and with our justice system is the role that fear plays. And I think that people under appreciate the extent to which so many of the decisions that shape what young people in hyper-segregated communities where there is limited opportunity for upward mobility, communities that are saturated with violence, communities that are saturated with poverty because of the decades and decades of public policy that has made their communities look that way, not because of anything that these communities have done to deserve it. That shapes a certain level of fear that these young people carry, and that fear animates every single decision that they have. And I think that what amplifies and, and magnifies and exacerbates that fear is the fact that some so many of these young people are not only fearing violence from people in the community themselves, whether it be rival gangs or what have you, but also because they are now fearing the very people who are meant to protect them. They are fearing the people who ostensibly should be providing them the state-sanctioned safety from these other forces. And I think that when we think about why young people get involved in crime or when we think about why young people commit uh, ostensibly violent acts uh, or commit harm against other people, oftentimes it is because they are trying to prevent harm against themselves and that that harm and that trauma compounded by the fact that their like executive function isn't fully developed because we know that's not fully developed until you're in your mid-20s. All of that sort of that confluence of factors comes together to make it so that that fear is it makes you do things that you might not otherwise do. And and when you're continuously frightened and scarred by the police and when you're continuously frightened and scarred by the uh, other factors that you see in your community, you might do things that in other another scenario you wouldn't be as likely to do. 
Imagine what it's like to be living every single day and be damned if you do and damned if you don't. And to be driven into these kind of highly stressful situations that Clint just so thoughtfully broke down um, that can lead to poor choices, that can lead to challenging uh, situations, that can lead to being in spaces and moments of real compromise. And so this is why it's really important to recognize that as we create systems of accountability, that is just the first step. The ultimate goal is to create a world where justice exists, where young people like this are not dealing with fear from all sides of their lives and having to deal with public servants being the ones who are pushing them to these ends. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And now my interview with Emily Bazelon, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and co-host of Slate Political Gab Fest. She's also the author of Charge, a new movement to transform American prosecution in mass incarceration. Here's our combo. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It is such a pleasure to talk with you, Duray, as always. We're talking to you this time because you have a new book coming out called Charge, the new movement to transform American prosecution in mass incarceration. We obviously know you as a writer on the New York Times Magazine and the co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest podcast. But there's a new podcast, too, called Charged Inside New York's Gun Court that launches on April 17th. Why the book? Why now? Like, you have been writing for a long time. Your reporting has made an impact already. Uh, What's different about the book? I think what's different about the book is that I lucked into this moment of change in a lot of cities across the country. When I started working on this book three years ago, I wanted to write about the power of prosecutors because I knew that was a huge issue in the criminal justice system. But then what happened while I was reporting was that lots of other people figured out the power of prosecutors and they were in a position to do something about it. And I'm talking about activists. It was really like a grounds up movement, I, I think kind of springing from the Black Lives Matter movement. And then also some donors. And they kind of teamed up to run candidates who are promising to make progressive changes from the DA's office in a number of cities. And some of those folks got elected. So I got to watch a kind of change taking place on the ground that I hadn't anticipated, but that made things for me um, pretty exciting. There are a million parts of the criminal justice system uh, to think about focusing on. How did you even get to prosecutors? So years ago, back in 2010, I was working on a story for The Times Magazine about reforming the three strikes law in California. And this is like super punitive, harsh law. So I was talking to the conservative Republican DA in Los Angeles at the time. His name was Steve Cooley. And he told me a story about a man named Gregory Taylor. So Gregory Taylor was this homeless guy. And the third strike or the potential third strike he'd committed was that he was hungry. And so he had unscrewed the door to get into the food pantry in a church. 
And his file landed not on Steve's desk. This is back when Steve was prosecuting cases as an assistant DA. It landed on the file of the guy who sat next to Steve. And that lawyer decided to charge Gregory Taylor with a third strike, which effectively meant that because he was hungry and had committed a really minor infraction, he was going to go to prison for the rest of his life. And Cooley told me this story because he thought it was really unjust. And he said, you know, I would never have done that if that file had landed on my desk. And the story made Cooley into a reformer on three strikes, despite the fact that he was a conservative Republican who, you know, was in favor of the death penalty. I think there was just this random arbitrary quality to what happened that really struck him. And it stuck with me (laughs) over a number of years. Like once you are sensitive to the power of prosecutors and how much discretion they have, you start seeing it everywhere. And in the book, you follow two stories to tell this larger story. Why enter the issue this way with these two stories? So each of the stories serves a different purpose in the book. One of the stories takes place in Memphis, and it involves a woman named Nora Jackson. When she was 18, she was charged and prosecuted for killing her mother. This was like a mysterious stabbing in the middle of the night. And Nora went down for that killing. It came to light later that the prosecutor in her case, Amy Weirich, had not disclosed evidence that the Tennessee Supreme Court ruled could have helped Nora prove her innocence. And because of that nondisclosure of evidence, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed Nora's conviction. It turned out that Weirich and her office had a real pattern of not disclosing exonerating evidence. And when I learned about that, I just thought, like, well, how is this possible? How can a prosecutor and an office break this basic rule repeatedly and get away with it? Weirich had become the elected district attorney in Memphis despite this record. So I was really curious about that. And in the book, I wanted to tell the story as showing some of the abuses that can happen from a kind of old school prosecutor. The second story in the book is about a different kind of DA, Eric Gonzalez, who's part of the reform movement. But it's also asking about the kind of limitations of reform, because I tell a story in Brooklyn about a guy named Kevin that I should say that's not his real name. He didn't want me to use his real name, but he was charged with gun possession, which is a, treated as a serious violent crime in New York. Just having a gun, you don't have to have a record, just having it in your hands. And because of the mandatory prison sentence that Kevin faced, there was this huge fork in the road in his life where he could either go to prison or he could participate in a diversion program that Eric Gonzalez's office had set up as a kind of escape hatch for young defendants charged with gun possession. So I was really curious. I watched his case go through the system to kind of just see what would happen to him. It was, for me, a kind of test of a choice between harsh punishment and mercy. I'm curious. So that makes sense about the why two stories. And one of the things that's interesting about the book is that, you know, when you follow the two stories as a reader, you learn so much about the system. Can you talk about like, what did you learn that you didn't know? Like, what were some of the surprises about the way uh, the criminal legal system actually works in practice that like you learned during this process, especially given that you had already written so much about different facets of sort of criminal justice, mass incarceration? I would love to know, like, what things surprised you or what things didn't you know? What questions did you come up with that you were like, wow, look at that? Watching plea bargaining, which takes place entirely outside of public view, right? This is like lawyers haggling in the hallway. It's not something in a courtroom. It's just a fascinating process. And you realize, again, how seemingly arbitrary or at least like off the books the process is. And, you know, plea bargaining is the process, Trials are happening now in state court like 2% of the time. So really what happens to you almost all the time is either your charges are dismissed or more frequently you wind up being convicted through a guilty plea. And so that process, which is really crucial, happens in a black box. And I got to watch it up front in a number of cases, and that was really surprising to me. If it happens out of uh, the public view, how did you get to watch it? Well, because I was following these cases, I had sort of (laughs) insinuated myself. So I had, you know, agreed that I wasn't going to publish anything until after the case was resolved. And that made it much easier for defense lawyers 
to let me in on their negotiations because I wasn't going to use the information in a way that could harm their clients' interests. And over time, I was also able to gain the trust of some of the prosecutors so they would tell me about their thinking. And, you know, those are the two sides of the plea bargain. So if you're talking to both of those people, you can get a sense, you can piece together what's happening. Now, you know, I worry sometimes that people say that the prosecutor is the most important part of the criminal justice system. And, you know, if we fix this, we fix it all. I, because I think that leads to this sense of like a silver bullet in the criminal legal system. And I, and I worry about that rhetoric. But... I'd love to know what you think about, like, the power that they do have to lead to substantial systemic change. And, like, is there a way to change that prosecutor's role? Because there are a lot of people who sort of say that, like, even the best prosecutor, like, still has to put people in jail. So, like, you know, you're just the better jailer. Do you think that's true? Or, like, have you seen some models that can actually get us to a sense of, like, there actually being fairness in the process? Well, I think if you're a total abolitionist, like you don't think we should have a criminal justice system or prisoner jail for anyone, then it's like hard to get behind any prosecutors. But I'm not a total abolitionist. And I think that, yes, it is possible to have, let's put it like this. We have let punishment in America, incarceration and other forms balloon so far beyond what is humane and necessary. There is such a huge distance to travel that I and so much greater chance for injecting fairness and just like decent treatment of both victims and perpetrators into the system. There's just so much to do that prosecutors can do things on their own. They can stop prosecuting whole categories of cases like marijuana possession or jumping a turnstile or, you know, in Texas, like putting people in jail for unpaid traffic tickets is a big thing. And then the other thing they can do is push other parts of the system to change. So you're totally right. They can't do this on their own. And some people that were elected recently, you know, I'm thinking of like Rachel Rollins in Boston or Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. They're facing significant pushback from like judges or the probation and parole department. They're all these different bureaucrats who can gum up the works. But if they keep pushing, they can hopefully get somewhere. And I also think that changing the way prosecutors have lobbied is a huge thing, right? So traditionally, all the state district attorneys associations have pushed for harsher sentences and, you know, law and order, tough on crime policies. Well, if you have a a, a counterpoint voice to that from prosecutors who are saying, you know what, let's make jail and prison the very last resort. Let's think about criminal justice through a public health lens, because so many of the people caught up in the criminal justice system are experiencing problems related to health and mental health. That can change the whole conversation, I think. Say you elect somebody, even the good guy, like you think about Krasner, you think about Kim Fox, you think about Rachel. Is it like, what can citizens do to push them? Or is it that citizens need to like push the change of laws so that that helps the prosecutors? Like, do you have any insight to that? Yeah. So I have a few thoughts. I mean, the first is like, let's not skip over voting, right? Because like one of the amazing things about this movement has been that it's city-based. You can take control or, you know, change the face of this local office. It doesn't take that many votes. These aren't elections that lots of people pay attention to. And so if a group of citizens gets organized, like they have a lot of power. And the power of prosecutors is our power as citizens because we vote them into office in almost every state. Another thing that has happened recently that I think is really healthy are these court watch groups that have sprung up in cities where people are just like sitting on the benches and recording what they see and then putting them online, like tweeting them out or going on Facebook and tagging the prosecutor's offices. You know what? Those DAs in those cities, they see that. They're responding sometimes on social media. And I feel like that's such an important counterpoint, right? Like traditionally, a lot of media coverage of criminal justice is like the worst, scariest, high-profile crime and then pressure on the prosecutor. You're supposed to indict someone, right? Like, you know, the police and the prosecutor are there like to keep us safe. And like, yes, that's part of their job. But so much more of their job is like ordinary people in court every day who did something that maybe is a crime, but, you know, maybe we don't need to treat as a criminal infraction, certainly not as something that sends people to jail. And so, you know, in New York, when the court watch groups show up and they start saying, like, someone's going to jail because they can't make bail because they took a bar of soap. 
that makes an impact. And it creates, again, this whole sort of counter narrative where you can stop um, thinking of public safety as something that involves locking people up. So let me put one more idea out there, and this is really addressed to the legal profession, but I bet you have some lawyers in your audience. The legal profession has done a terrible job of policing prosecutors when they commit abuses, like just terrible. And it's a huge problem because prosecutors are absolutely immune from lawsuits. That's like a bad rule the Supreme Court put in place. And what that means is that, you know, okay, all state officials have what's called qualified immunity. It's like not easy to win a suit, but you can try. And absolute immunity means like forget about it. If the prosecutor, whatever they did, if it was in the course of their duties, like, no, you don't win. And when the Supreme Court did that, they said, you know what, don't worry, because there are other remedies. The the bar, the legal profession, will take care of this through, like, state bar disciplinary committees. But it just almost never happens. And so I think that is really on the legal profession to, to step up. Uh, can we talk about the new podcast that you're coming out with? Oh, I would love to talk about that. <laughs> why focus on, why gun court? Who even knew there was a special gun court? And people talk about true crime shows, but it seems like you've called this a true punishment story. What does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So I created this, I'm creating, I should say, with a lot of help, this podcast called Charged, like my book. And the idea was to focus on this gun court in Brooklyn, which nobody is paying attention to. And it was created to crack down on these gun possession cases with a lot of fanfare. Mayor de Blasio got it going in the beginning of 2016. And, you know, when you talk about getting guns off the streets, like nobody really questions you. That seems like something we can all agree on, right? It's like a marriage of a law and order agenda and gun control, which like de Blasio's liberal base is all for gun control. So I started going to this court, and what struck me was how removed a lot of the lives of the defendants were from the stereotype I had in my own head of, like, dangerous people with guns. You know, I don't mean to say that guns are not dangerous, because of course they are. But when you're, like, a poor black kid in Brooklyn, you might have a gun because you feel like you're trying to protect yourself. That was a word I just heard over and over from people on these benches and gun court was like protection. And so I really spent a lot of time trying to understand what that means and to think about why we are sending these young people to prison when in a lot of states, right, there's the NRA celebrating gun rights. In There are states where having a gun, like there is no such thing as an illegal gun. There was such a disconnect there. And I just wanted to think about what theory of punishment was operating and then watch some of the people go through this process and see what it yielded. Is it a big gun court? There are hundreds of cases in this gun court a year. So in the first two years, they had like 850 people go through it. So significant. Yeah. What do you think about, you know, de Blasio is sort of complicated, right? In so many respects, the arrest rate did dramatically fall. Like that is true. And it also seems that there's so much work to still be done. How do you make sense of his record with regard to criminal justice. Right. So de Blasio comes into office and he's building on this like incredibly successful long-term decline of crime in New York City, right? There's this criminologist named Franklin Zimring wrote a book called The City That Became Safe. It's about New York. There is like obviously a lot of taking of credit for this declining crime. One, I think, factor that just doesn't get enough attention is the development of more nonprofits, more public health services, the way in which like improving the life of a community, things like changing the lighting in a public housing project, those things can make a real difference. But we tend so often to focus on what the cops are doing and in this case on what like sentences in gun court are doing. I really question that. And there's a lot of research to suggest that, again, like the way we think about public health and safety can be about making communities healthier. So, you know, for example, like if you have a vacant lot and people in a community get together and they turn it into a playground, there's research suggesting like, okay, well, now kids are out there and then their parents or other grownups are keeping an eye on them. And there's like foot traffic and people just kind of around and that can make the neighborhood safer. That's a lot different from like throwing up everyone against the wall and doing stop and frisk. Right, right. That makes sense. Is gun court a good thing? 
Like, is it good that all the cases happen in one place where I'm sure the argument was like specialized knowledge and stuff like that? No, gun court is not a good idea. You know, usually when we have specialized courts, they're helping courts. So like veterans court or drug treatment court or housing court where, you know, tenants get some help getting out of evictions or dealing with landlords who aren't fixing things. Gun court is about putting more people in prison. And so, you know, because I was really questioning the premise of whether all those people needed to go to prison, it seemed to me that collecting their cases was making things more punitive. And I should say, I did some research. I went through a couple hundred files of the people, you know, to make sure that, like, I wasn't just cherry picking or seeing what I wanted to see. And what I found was that 70% of the folks there didn't have a prior felony conviction. So, like, again, the notion that these are like these hard bitten criminals, it just was really not that simple. So, where do we go from here? Is there a place that you think this is getting better quicker? Or is this like a what's the what at the system level? Well, I think there's a couple of really important things. I mean, first of all, I would say if my book only accomplishes that more people know that they have the power to elect their local district attorney, I will be happy because the ACLU did a survey a year or two ago and like half of Americans didn't know that district attorney was an elected office. So let's start there. That's like a good starting place. You know, I think that there's a potential here for urban voters to try to create model criminal justice programs that have much more room for restorative justice in them. And what I mean by that are, you know, opportunities for victims and the people who've harmed them to get together and like work through what went wrong and try to come to some kind of reckoning, which I think often is much more meaningful to crime victims than putting someone away. And, you know, we should say like this is not a system that is serving victims well if you look at their rates of satisfaction with it. So there's something wrong on that end too. And, you know, it's a mistake also to think of victims as like some separate group from criminals because often those categories really overlap. Like we're talking about people in the same communities, sometimes the same people. So that's my kind of hope for this movement for progressive prosecutors is that if it can translate into cities that are changing how they do business, that can help state legislators say like, huh, well, maybe we could start looking at these really harsh sentencing laws and, by the way, save a lot of money, right? Like this is why I think this movement has been bipartisan in some places, that the, the exorbitant cost of the system is lost on no one. You know, jail and prison make the circumstances of people's lives more desperate in a way that can lead them to commit more crimes. So I feel like there is actually actually, this big opportunity right here. There's polls suggesting that a large majority of voters are ready to reduce the jail and prison population. And I look at those polls and I think, huh, this kind of looks like the marriage equality movement, where you have a real shift in public opinion, and then it just takes the politicians a while to catch up because they're risk averse. But like, if people keep pushing it, maybe they'll get there. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also, and like you talk about this, right, is that one of the ways the status quo continues to hold so much sway is that people literally just don't understand. Like, they don't know what their own power is. So they think that the system is sort of this thing that works independent of their consent. And, like, you and I know that's not true. Uh, so trying to figure out how do we tell stories so people, like, actually understand that they can have a role, you know? Absolutely. I mean, that is something I really try to do because I think that being able to connect the dots and imagine yourself making that kind of difference, like that changes how you feel about yourself, about the social compact of like the country, the city you live in. It's It can be pretty profound. There are two questions that I ask everybody. One is, what do you say to people who are losing hope? There are a lot of people who, especially with the prosecutors, are, are there are certainly people I know who feel like they have done everything, right? They like voted, they went to the meetings, they called, they emailed, and like the world didn't change the way they wanted it to yet. What do we say to those people? I mean, it's a long road, right? And like, what choice do we have if we're going to stay alive, but to keep traveling it? So, you know, I guess what I'd say about this is like, find something that fires you up and take part in it and kind of no matter what. And then also find something that gives you peace so that you're not constantly butting your head against a wall. You're also giving yourself some respite. What piece of advice have you gotten over the years that stuck with you? So a few weeks ago, I interviewed a couple of women who are professors at Stanford and Columbia, and they work on, like, women's leadership issues. 
And they had this piece of advice I hadn't thought of in this way before that I thought was really helpful. And it was really, I guess, mostly directed at women and people of color. And it was to look for unlikely allies. So the idea is like, you know, you're in a workplace, you're the minority, you might write off a lot of the white men around you and just think they don't see me in themselves. And so they're not going to be my mentors. But like some of them will and they should be doing that. So think about the people who are in power, even if they don't look like you or they're not their gender and whether some of them are open or even like willing and interested in helping you um, and make them the people who are expending the time and energy to help you advance. Thank you. uh, And I can't wait for more people to read the book. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure talking with you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 